Good afternoon, and thank you all very much for coming to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm a director of health policy studies here at Cato. And today we're going to be talking about healthcare reform and specifically the role of innovation. We've heard a lot of talk about healthcare reform so far this year, but and over the years we've heard lots of comparisons of America's healthcare sector to other nations' healthcare systems, but there's been very little talk in either of those discussions about innovation. And I think that's too bad. Innovation is, is what makes us wealthier. It's what lifts nations out of poverty. Innovation allows us to save more lives today than we were able to save yesterday. And I would argue that innovation is the most important type of healthcare reform. So to bring innovation to the fore of the healthcare debate, the Cato Institute it was proud to publish this study, Bending the Productivity Curve, Why America Leads the World in Medical Innovation, co-authored by economist Glenn Whitman and Dr. Raymond Rad, who's with us today. Uh, Dr. Rad is going to be presenting the findings of that paper, and then we're going to have comment uh, from, uh, from, from two distinguished experts in the field. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of information about each of them. Dr. Rad is a resident in psychiatry at New York Presbyterian Hospital and the Weill Cornell Medical Center. Am I pronouncing Weill correctly? Excellent. Thank you. Uh, following him will be uh, Professor Gerard Anderson, of, uh, who is director and center Director of the Center for Hospital Finance and Management at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School for Public Health. And batting cleanup will be Jack Calfee, who's an economist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. And after these presentations, we're going to have some question and answer, uh, uh, question and answer period. Then we'll invite you to join us for lunch upstairs in the Winter Garden. So we will start with Dr. Rad. So thanks, Michael, for the introduction. So as he said, I'm going to be talking about the contribution of the United States to medical innovation versus that of other countries. Um, comparisons in healthcare systems across countries are very popular and influential in health policy debates. Um, the, the, those four up there are the most influential, and there are others. Um, there are several problems with these studies, which I'm not going to get into here, but you can ask me about during the question and answer period if you're interested. But one of the problems is that none of them include any measure of the contribution of various countries to medical innovation. Now, why is it important to include innovation? Well, as um, Mr. Cannon just said, in innovation is what makes us healthier. It's what brought us to the healthcare system that we have today. And in many ways, um, I would argue that innovation is more important than the two issues that are considered most important in healthcare today, rising costs and um, lack of health insurance, because really a treatment has to first be developed before its costs can be addressed and its use can be extended to everybody. <clears throat> now, a common question that's asked is why wouldn't innovation show up in other measures? If a lot of great cancer treatments are coming out of the United States, why wouldn't we expect that cancer care would be better and therefore our outcomes for cancer would be better in the United States? Well, it's, it usually wouldn't work that way, mainly because innovation has many qualities of a public good. Usually new ideas are developed by a handful of people, and the costs are incurred to one country or a few countries, whereas once the products are developed, they tend to improve outcomes in a variety of countries or all over the world. So what's the best way to measure innovation? How do we go about it and compare it across countries? Well, there's a few properties about innovation we should keep in mind. 
um, when we do that that make it difficult to measure. The first is that not all advances are equal. Some require a lot more ingenuity than others. And so therefore, simple output statistics are not as worthwhile. Statistics like how many new drugs come out of the United States versus how many in Europe um, don't really differentiate among the ingenuity of drugs. The second property about innovation to keep in mind is that new ideas are often controversial at first. That makes it difficult to measure new innovations, innovations that came out in 2008, because it's still um, an open question as to which of them are going to make the biggest difference on patient care. And so we, just, we think that the best way to measure innovation is to really focus on the cream of the crop and those innovations that have been widely accepted in the field. So we divide innovation into four categories. Um, the first is in basic medical sciences. These are advances that help us understand how diseases affect our body, what causes disease. Second is in diagnostics. These are advances that help us discover what disease a person has. So a blood test that tells us whether someone has had a heart attack. Third is in therapeutics. These are advances that help us treat diseases. Um, so drugs would fall into this category. New advances in surgery are an alternative example. And the fourth is in business models. These are advances in the way that healthcare is organized and delivered to consumers. So let's take a look at these um, one by one. First is basic medical sciences. Well, one way to measure the cream of the crop in basic medical sciences is to look at Nobel Prizes. This is a, this is a prize that's international in scope. It's not biased for or against any particular country. I mean, it really does measure only the top innovations and those that have been widely accepted in the field. If we look at the 40-year period from 1969 to 2008, there have been 95 recipients of the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology during that period, and 57 of these 95, or 60%, um, were um, due to people who did their work in the United States. In comparison, 40, or about 40%, um, are essentially given to all the, other, all the other developed countries of the world combined. Um, so the contribution of the United States has been very significant here. You may notice that 57 and 40 add up to 97, not 95, and that's because two um, two scientists did their work both in the United States and in another country. Let's move on to diagnostics and therapeutics. In 2001, a study was published that looked into the top, the two top medical journals and picked out over a 25-year period the 30 innovations that were most frequently the, the topic of a published study in those journals. And then it took those 30 innovations and asked primary care physicians throughout the United States to rank them and rate them on how well they impact patient care and how useful they are in their practice. And um, so we have a ranked order list of 30 innovations, and we looked at the history of these to see where they were developed, who contributed to their development. And we ex um, excluded three of them because they were developed more than 40 years ago, and of the remaining 27, um, work in the United States contributed significantly to the, con to the development of 20 out of the 27 and 9 of the top 10. Um, in comparison, work in the European Union and Switzerland contributed to 14 of the top 27 and 5 of the top 10. Um, these statistics, um, one should keep in mind that the population of European Union and Switzerland is more than 50% larger than that of the United States. Another way to look at um, diagnostics therapeutics is through drugs. This is the most well-studied category. Um, a few economists at the Manhattan Institute put together a list of 38 top drugs in the, um, in the world, the top pharmaceutical classes. And... Um, we looked into the history of these as well, but this time we focused on where was the work done that finally brought them to market, the final stages of development, which, which companies finally brought them to patient, um, to be available to patients. And here again, um, we excluded um, eight of them because uh, they were developed more than 40 years ago, and of the remaining ones, 
were um, companies in the United States brought 16 to market, companies in the European Union and Switzerland brought 15. Um, again, the population of the European <laughs> Union and Switzerland is more than 50% larger than that of the United States. So before we move on to business models, let's stop and reflect on why America seems to be leading in, this, in these areas. Well, we don't have any definitive answers in this category, but we can offer some hypotheses. I'm going to offer a few um, non-mutually exclusive ideas. First is that the U.S. appears to be attracting high-quality innovators. Um, when we looked at the history of the innovations in this paper, we found several examples of scientists, physicians um, from other countries, even training in other countries, then coming to the United States to practice and do their science, and while they're here developing their innovations that made it um, to the top 30. Financial factors may be playing a role. Usually the high spending of the United States is seen as a defect in health care. Why don't we spend as little as other countries do? Well, the increased spending might be at least contributing to increased innovation. Um, in basic sciences, um, the new National Institutes of Health spends, um, funds most of the basic science innovation in the United States, and it has an annual budget of more than $30 billion a year. In, con in comparison, um, all the European Union countries combined have an annual budget of 3 to $4 billion a year on basic sciences. In diagnostics and therapeutics, we don't have definitive data, but there's some preliminary evidence that, it's, that there's more spending in the U.S. as well. Other financial factors. Um, physicians get paid more in the United States. They get paid twice as much or more than in other developed countries. Um, that could be attracting higher quality um, physicians into the United States. And there are larger monetary returns on medical innovation. Um, pharmaceuticals are the most well-studied category here, and we see that even um, prices for pharmaceuticals are 35 to 55% lower in other industrialized countries. And so as a result, even though the United States is 5% of the world's population, it accounts for 45% of the sales of pharmaceuticals are measured in money. And even in non-pharmaceuticals, in other technologies, we see faster and more extensive use of technology in the United States, which could be contributing to greater monetary returns on those as well. There may be cultural factors involved. Um, Thomas Bohm, who's a scientist who's worked both in the United States and in Germany and Austria, um, noticed that the research environment in the United States was more meritocratic and more tolerant of risky new ideas. Um, so there, this is something to explore and to think about further as a, as a contributing factor. And there may be non-healthcare um, policy-related factors, things like our tax code, our um, patent system, general business climate may be contributing as well. So let's move on to business model innovation. Um, healthcare in the United States and most other developed countries are dominated by two models, um, the general hospitals and physicians' practices. Now, there may be many virtues to these models, and I think there are, um, but there's, in recent years, there's been increasing documentation of problems that they lead to in, in certain cases. There's fragmentation of care. People go through a lot of different doctors, none of whom really has a full sense of all their illnesses. Waste and inefficiencies have been documented, high rates of medical errors. Again, this is not just the United States, but other countries as well. And inconveniences of care. It's hard to find a doctor on a weekend or when you need one. Um, there have been business models that have been developed to deal with some of these problems. Integrated systems like Kaiser Permanente in California help to deal with some of the fragmentation of care problems. <clears throat> Nurse practitioner staffed clinics help to deal with some of the inconveniences problems. And specialty hospitals deal with some of the quality of care problems. Now, even though I can list these examples, progress in this area has been very slow. The dominant models are still general hospitals and, and individual or, or small group physicians' practices. And so we decided it's not really worthwhile to compare countries in this area because we don't have a comparable list like in other areas of real innovations that have really transformed the field in the last 40 years. But instead, it's worthwhile to at least spend some time thinking about why innovation in this area has been slow. 
To some extent, it might just be the nature of the beast that innovation in this area is just going to be slower than in others. But we also think there have been contributing factors, um, those that are listed up there, um, that we discuss in the paper. And if anyone's interested, I'd be happy to talk about it in the question and answer period. So that brings us to healthcare reform. Well, the specifics haven't been completely laid out, so we can't predict the final effect in detail. But we can offer some general guidelines and ways to think about how health reform can affect innovation. First issue to consider is price controls on pharmaceuticals. Um, these can be either direct price controls or efforts to allow government to negotiate prices with pharmaceutical companies, which would be effective price controls. These are likely to reduce monetary returns on pharmaceutical innovation and are likely to reduce pharmaceutical innovation in time. Certainly in Europe, price controls have been documented to decrease um, spending on research and development in pharmaceuticals. Similarly, excise taxes, which are being proposed on, drug on drugs and devices, would have a similar effect. Second issue is expanding the buying power of the government. This can be either through a public option or expanding um, Medicaid, for example. Um, in general, government pays less for, certain, for services than private insurers do, and as a result, this over time would likely lead to price controls on diagnostics and therapeutics and to decrease physician compensation, um, which are likely to reduce innovation, both in tandem and each separately. And it would also increase government's power to block business model innovations. In 2003, as a result of the lobbying efforts of general hospitals, Congress um, refused um, to pay with Medicare funds any um, services done at specialty hospitals. And as a result, limited the growth of that new business model. The larger that the government's buyer buying power is, the more the government's going to have the power to limit the growth of new business models in that way. And lastly, insurance price controls and regulations. These are um, regulations that will tell insurance companies who they have to cover, what they have to cover, how much they can charge. Um, in general, these are likely to limit innovative insurance products, which themselves are necessary for further business model development and further diagnostics and therapeutics. It'll make it harder for insurance companies to cover outlying services and models. And so here are a few concluding points. Um, Basically, America seems to lead the world in basic sciences, diagnostics, and therapeutics innovation. Um, we don't know all the reasons, but we have some ideas for this, what, this, um, what could be causing this. America seems to attract high-quality scientists, um, and health policies are playing a role, or not, although not the entire role. Um, and American innovations might likely be contributing to outcomes all in all countries. So it's not, um, it's not easy to just isolate the effect of innovation by just looking at the outcomes in, the, in individual countries in individual countries. Um, and business model innovations, although needed in, to solve some of the problems in healthcare, have been very slow across countries. Um, and I want to thank my co-author and Cato Institute for letting me speak and the Institute for Humane Studies. Thanks. I'd like to thank Michael for uh, inviting me here. This is my first time, actually, to the Cato Institute. I think I have slides that are... Yeah, they should be around here somewhere. Uh, yeah. Go to right there. I'll tab you over there. Anderson presentation. There we go. Thank you. So um, I want to talk about uh, innovation. And um, basically, since I'm the liberal in the room, I need to find some friends. So basically, what I want to talk about is the whole concept of is we're for innovation as well. Um, the students basically at Hopkins consider we, we spend most of our time talking about innovation and not enough time teaching them. 
Hopkins established as a research organization. We win a fair number of those Nobel Prize. We won one this year, and we get more R01s than anybody else. So innovation is what we're about at Johns Hopkins, and that's part of the reason why I'm there. So let me then talk about is innovation the most important area, as Rod seemed to suggest it was. And I would argue that innovation is absolutely necessary. It's really hard to do surgery without having anesthesia, which was a, an important development, hard to treat infections without penicillin. I could go on, and I know the Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholars here, they have much better evidence on this than I do. But innovation is only as good as, A, the country can afford, and you know, I'm going to come at the end of how much can the United States afford in terms of health services research and innovation and all these things, and equally important that people have access to it. So we don't expect Bangladesh to be doing a lot of innovative work because they couldn't afford to do those things. So country has to afford it and people have access to it, or else innovation just really doesn't, is just sort of an academic exercise that doesn't have any value. So let's start with basic science, as Rad suggested. Basically, I would argue that the government has a responsibility for this basic science because there's no real private gain from the provision of basic science. Nobody can find a way to, to find the benefit from it and in a private way. And for it to be a, a, a valuable thing, it really is a pure public good. It's going to be something that you want, all this research widely disseminated, and you don't really want to restrict access to this basic science. So we have the NIH, as Rad suggested. It's funded through competitive grants. It's given out to lots of different places. Now, that is all good, but now let me just add one more thing. What I think there is is a need for additional research. If we're talking about this as a pure public good, we're talking about issues that are not just about the United States and diseases just in the United States and not just diseases um, in Western Europe and the developing countries. Yet if we look at the money that's spent by NIH, nearly all of the, the diseases that they're studying are in high-income countries. And yet most of the effectiveness that we could do would be to take care of illnesses in low-income countries. And so the challenge that we've been debating for the last several years now is how to get research conducted in diseases relevant to low-income countries not, and low-income individuals, not just high incomes. And so what we see in health affairs and, and in and the New England Journal of Medicine is a number of ideas about priority review vouchers, about advanced market commitments, and again, uh, maybe playing to the audience here, I have an article in the current issue of Health Affairs which talks about tax credits for biomedical companies in, uh, so that they can do some more research in neglected diseases. So the question is how do we get more research out there, basic research, beginning research to deal with the, the problems in low and middle income countries, which they just don't have the money to spend on biomedical research. So, but what I want to talk more about is diagnostics and therapeutics, mostly funded through private enterprise. And the question that I want to keep coming back to is who should fund most of this research and development? Should it be the United States, the European Union, Japan, China, 
Bangladesh, who should be funding most of this research? If we look at the development of research in the United States, and we'll talk about, first of all, blockbuster drugs, we're not doing very well as a, a country, as a world, in terms of coming up with new blockbuster drugs. It's just dropping off the map in terms of what we've got. So we don't have the right incentives out there right now to get come up with blockbuster drugs. And so, according to all the different measures of innovation, basically the development of these innovative pharmaceuticals devices has pretty much slowed down, and even though we've seen a significant investment by NIH and other places in basic science. So if we look at another example of this, new molecular entities approved by the FDA, 53 in 1996, only 17 in 2007, we're slowing down. These are before they actually become the blockbuster drugs. We're just not getting the right financial incentives out there to pharma, to, to bio, biologics, and other places to come up with these new things. This is, in fact, all, and what we've seen over the period of time is fairly rapid increases in incomes to the pharmaceutical companies, to the biologics, to the device companies, yet if I just look at pharmaceuticals, they're only spending about 10, 12, 15 percent of their total revenues on research and development. And marketing represents about 30 percent. And even as profits have increased in the pharmaceutical industry, basically the percentage has remained pretty constant at 12 to 15 percent. So if we're talking about innovation, we could be talking about innovation in marketing, but I think what we're talking about is innovation in research and development, and the question is how can we spur the industry to do those kinds of things. So we look internationally, we look at a number of payment incentives that are out there besides the United States, we see reference pricing, probably not going to spur much innovation, we see formularies probably not going to spur much innovation. And then we look at a third one, which is value-based purchasing. And that is giving companies an economic incentive to develop drugs with demonstrated benefits over existing treatments. What we are getting in the United States right now and in the world is a lot of me-too drugs, one-off drugs. And the question is, how do we get drugs with demonstrated benefits over existing treatments? Now, here's a country that you wouldn't have expected to do this, Sweden. Sweden says, and the, the minister, health minister in Sweden said, if the pharmaceutical industry can rely on us to pay a high price for drugs which are beneficial to society, then they will probably deliver more new drugs for urgent treatment. So the question is, with value-based purchasing, can we create the incentives so that they have, so we create drugs with a high value for society? If I look at spending on pharmaceuticals, 45% of it occurs in the United States, 30% in EU, 10% in Japan. If I look at this, it's not proportional to populations, it's not proportional to wealth, it's not proportional to income, age. Uh, Japan has a much older population, EU has a much older population. And as I look at it, it's not, if I look at expenditures, it's prices, not quantity. Our prices are substantially higher. So 
I looked at the data for the 30 most commonly prescribed drugs, brand name drugs, brand name drugs in the United States. And basically what we see is the United States, if I put them at 1.0, all the other countries for brand name drugs pay approximately a third of the price that we pay for brand name drugs. Now we pay substantially uh, less for generic drugs. And those are the ones where there is no innovation, but the ones where there is innovation, we're paying substantially more. But do we have the right incentives for them to develop the new drugs? And it would strike me as we probably don't. If I look at per capita income, it, the difference, the United States is the richest country, but the differential isn't close to what we spend in terms of prices on drugs. Now, I don't have to show you this. You've all seen the fact the United States spends a lot more on health care than any other country. If I look at pharmaceutical pricing specifically, we spend, we spend substantially more. And most of this is the result of prices, not as the result of quantity. We're not getting more drugs. We're getting more expensive drugs. I don't have a number for the United States on terms of population coverage, but remember, I started talking about access to pharmaceuticals. It's not good just to have innovation. It's good to have access. All these other European countries have universal access to pharmaceuticals. We don't. And so the question is, how do we get to that? Finally, I want to just talk briefly about location of discovery, because Rod talked about that issue. As I understand research, it's multidisciplinary. It involves lots of different actors. It's really hard, although somebody gets a Nobel Prize, somebody gets the discovery, maybe it's Pfizer, maybe it's Merck, they get the discovery, but it's really hard to say who made that discovery. We can see who made the final step, but it's a whole long line of, of, of innovation that's going on on this, leading to any discovery. So essentially looking at it as the United States did this and Canada did this, is really ignores that whole international idea. Now, what I look at as innovation is an international public good. International companies can sell their drugs, their devices, their therapeutics in all the countries. The innovative co innovator country, being the United States or whatever, doesn't get an exclusive a license to purchase drugs in that country. Does, the companies themselves don't have any economic incentive to distribute that drug just in the innovative country. So essentially, it is, a, it is an international good. So the question is, why should the United States be funding all of this? And my last point is, remember the national debt. Remember the trade imbalance. I don't need to say anything more about that. Can we continue to afford it? Thanks. Thank you, um, Michael. It's always a pleasure to be uh, at Cato. It's, it's been too long from my, um, my perspective. Um, I just have a number of points to make uh, regarding innovation, um, devices and pharmaceuticals and so on. But let me mention a couple things that pertain um, to what Jerry was, was just talking about. Jerry and I have dueled um, over, <laughs> over the years. 
Um, a couple of these I'll, points <coughs> I'll get to as I go through the remarks that, that I had uh, prepared. But um, one thing that struck me is um, uh, the, the talk about public R&D. And by the way, I would endorse uh, what Jerry was saying at the end, that it uh, that when you look at where uh, uh, innovation occurs and so on, there's a huge disparity between the U.S. and the other nations in terms of the basic research environment. I don't think there's any denying that. Um, when you get to drug development, device development, the disparities um, are less. You can collect good applied scientists in other countries. Um, and some of the European uh, pharmaceutical firms in particular have been doing very well in the last 5 or 10 or 15 years uh, in, in devices and in, in biotechnology, the U.S. dominance. Um, is still um, 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 pretty high. But when you look at public R&D, uh, one of the things that, that Jerry's talking about, which I find a rather intriguing um, topic because, you know, I ask myself, why, how does it just so happen that NIH spends so much money and so little of it is spent on neglected diseases, diseases that pertain to other nations? Um, you can blame the pharmaceutical companies for not developing drugs for malaria, et cetera, et cetera, but those drugs are not coming from um, NIH um, either. Uh, even in areas where there, where there is arguably some sort of market failure, like antibiotics, everyone understands, and this is well documented in the literature, that when a new antibiotic hits, hits the market, uh, the smartest doctors will use that, those drugs as little as possible in order to avoid creating any kind of resistance. And so it can be a long time before an antibiotic makes money, and the result is, you know, most people agree that the incentives are fairly weak and we have trouble getting new antibiotics, and NIH, again, is not doing a whole lot to resolve this problem. You would think they would. Um, uh, HDL, a little bit of news recently about, um, about niacin, a rather old product uh, that's been tested uh, with some success in, in connection with HDL and heart disease. We don't know whether that will pan out or not, but it's a topic that's been intriguing research, researchers literally for decades. We're not getting a whole lot from the public sector. We're still waiting for the private sector to do that. Vitamin D, other 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 products. Um, so with that, and, and let me say just one other thing, again, about what, what uh, Jerry mentioned, and that's the disparity in, in drug prices across countries. There's no doubt that for most branded drugs, prices in other nations are, are a lot cheaper. The numbers that I've gotten are not quite as, as big a disparity as what Jerry's gotten, but the disparities are very large. But when you look at the drugs that are really unique, monoclonal antibodies, other biotech drugs, uh, ones that, do, that attack problems that no other drug is successfully attacked. Uh, and then you compare international prices, and you really don't much, find much difference at all. In fact, as a general rule, a lot of these drugs have one world price, and when you see price variations and so on, those mostly arise from currency fluctuations rather than for differential pricing. And this is simply because foreign nations have found that they cannot easily control the prices of drugs for which there is no substitute. So... Um, <clears throat> I think that the stakes in innovation are, are actually uh, rather large, and it's amazing. I agree with what Michael said. It's amazing how little discussion there has been of, of innovation in the context of healthcare reform. I, I think you can probably argue that when you look at what people are fighting over, what we're trying to preserve and extend in terms of healthcare, a very large proportion of that, maybe most of it, is our benefits that arise directly from innovations that have occurred in the last 10 or 15 or 20 or 20 years, not just in drugs, but increasingly in medical uh, devices. I would emphasize that research on these products continues long after the products are introduced into the market. This is not a situation where you do some research, you get a drug approved or device approved, and then you go do something else while the marketing department takes over and makes a lot of money. 
uh, most of the best products uh, approved in the last 10 or 15 years or so have had more R&D spent on them after they're approved than before. And I think you could probably argue for that for many of these drugs, more benefits have been revealed by post-approval R&D than by, by pre-approval pre um, R&D. And <clears throat> I would emphasize again that because you learn so much more about these drugs from continuing research, because in many cases you find new uses for drugs and you may even have two drugs that are developed for completely different illnesses and be, end up competing with each other because of the new uses that, um, <clears throat> that are developed. This is a kind of competition, I think, that is, that is not well appreciated, but it also means that if you're trying to gauge progress and innovation, you really can't just count the number of newly approved uh, chemical entities. Um, what really counts are the benefits uh, that you get out of, uh, out of new products, and in many cases, and this is increasingly true for some of the biotechnology drugs, those benefits are emerging uh, very rapidly long after the drugs um, are approved, and you simply can't count new drugs and then get a measure of how much innovation we're really getting. And the examples are actually are, are, are plentiful. Uh, my favorite example of, uh, is, is the statin, uh, cholesterol-reducing drugs, where post-approval research is the main reason that those drugs have revolutionized cardiology and revolutionized basic science, the understanding of how heart attacks occur. Uh, a vast and a monoclonal antibody has gone through hundreds of clinical trials. Trials continue uh, to this day. Uh, and you know, the examples, I think, uh, at this point have been fairly well documented, and they're quite, quite numerous. Um, but the real, the real stake here is innovation yet, uh, yet to occur. We know there will be more innovation in terms of uh, researching already approved products, but there's far more in the, in the pipeline. And frankly, I have no idea how many of those drugs are going to be uh, successful. I don't know, have, have no way of knowing whether it's going to come fast, whether it's going to come slow and so on. I'm reasonably confident that the future benefits will be even greater than the ones we've had uh, in the past, but there's no one who can know that um, with any kind of, kind of a certainty. Uh, <clears throat> And I think it's probably fair to say that in many of the most intriguing areas of, uh, of, uh, of both pharmaceuticals and devices, that they're probably, we're still basically, you know, we're, we're past the starting point, but it's not at all, at all clear that, we, that we're even um, very far along the way as to where innovation will ultimately lead. When you look at biotechnology, um, what they've done so far is probably just, you know, a, a flavor, just an, a, a sample of what we're going to get in the next 10 or 20 years. Medical devices with miniaturization, uh, uh, new computer technology and so on. I mean, there was a, a, a heart-assisting device that was, um, was tested and recently published, I think, in the New England Journal just this past week. It's an amazing device. It does much better than anything else has ever done for actually <clears throat> assisting the uh, the you know, the people with heart failure and failure and having their hearts um, actually function reasonably well and so on. And there's nothing different in principle, but the device is far better than anything has ever been done before because it's so much smaller, so much powerful, so much um, more reliable, et cetera, et cetera. That's the kind of thing that we're um, that we're getting, and that we may and that we're going to see a lot more of. And most of this is coming from private R&D. Uh, I've already mentioned something about public R&D. Um, <clears throat> your previous speakers described a lot of what's, um, what's been coming out of this, and it is mostly coming out of, out of private R&D, because that's where people find out whether it's an idea, a process, uh, a biological mechanism, so on, will actually pan out into getting a therapeutic that actually does some good, um, good for people. Um, the risk of failure uh, in this kind of R&D remains extremely large. I mean, one can go back just 
if you look in just the past five years or so, you can see some extraordinarily expensive failures. Uh, the, the, probably the most spectacular one was when Pfizer tested a drug called torcetrapib, which increased, um, uh, increases HDL dramatically. Um, and they had some wonderful results in early trials, and they did a full-fledged clinical trial, and, um, uh, and the drug provided no benefit at all. Apparently, it may have provided some, <clears throat> some negative benefit, but the, the data are not, not clear on that. But the, the, the drug was dropped. It cost at least a billion dollars. Um, that's not the only HDL drug where we've seen failure. There have been others. That's just the, that's just the biggest. Work will continue because the connection was between HDL and heart attacks uh, is even greater than the connection between LDL, which is what the statins attack, and heart attacks. And so it's just turning out to be a very tough um, scientific problem, uh, uh, et cetera. Uh, so the general rule is the risk uh, of innovation, the cost of innovation, the risk of failure, and so on, are just as great as ever. Uh, it just turns out that the benefits sometimes are also um, greater than, than ever. Uh, all this process, I would, what I would em <clears throat> emphasize, especially at a, the venue here at Cato, is entirely spontaneous. Uh, it comes from uh, uh, multiple um, sources, comes from uh, established firms, startup firms, firms that, uh, that have been around for a long time and, and finally after 10 or 15 years achieved some success and then began to make real money. The firms that achieve success rather quickly. Large firms that have, that have seen some wonderful things and then seen uh, failure. We can now see Mark doing fairly well, Pfizer having a lot of trouble. Uh, Novartis doing fairly well in some areas, uh, having a lot of trouble in other areas, et cetera, um, et cetera. But it's spontaneous. No one is planning this. No one is setting reimbursement rates in order to establish uh, incentives to do this kind of, of innovation. It's something that just arises out of the market uh, and arises disproportionately from the U.S. market because the U.S. market is not only the wealthiest market, but is a, it is the least constrained in terms of, um, of pricing. And, and so, as, as Jerry has indicated, you know, an awful lot of, uh, I mean, if, if the U.S. is accounting for, say, 40 to 45 percent of worldwide revenues for pharmaceuticals, you know it's, it's supplying a larger proportion of worldwide profits because the fixed costs are pretty much uh, even across those, um, those various countries. And so the U.S. is providing a disproportionate share of, the, uh, of the, the payoff for innovation and therefore a disproportionate share of the incentives, but it's not being done in a planned manner. It isn't something that is set out in advance by CMS, Medicare, or anyone else. It's something that has arisen spontaneously from the way products and services are paid for um, in this country. Uh, which brings me to health care uh, re reform. Uh, and the question is, and the, and the one that, uh, that sort of, uh, as I understand it, essentially motivated this, this session is, is healthcare form re reform going to be a threat to um, innovation, uh, especially in medical technology? Although I think that uh, some of the early remarks on the organization of healthcare are really quite, uh, quite relevant. I think that's one of the more neglected topics uh, in, in recent years. It's much discussed amongst academics, but not among, not, not in the in the larger public. And I'm, refer I'm referring to um, innovations and in how you actually. Um, provide services, how you actually um, uh, serve people who are sick and well, um, et cetera. Um, but the focus here is on medical technology, and the question is whether reform is likely to have um, an impact and whether that impact is likely uh, to be negative. And I do think that there are some things um, to worry about. Um, I think that the, um, uh, the main problem is that 
if we get a reform uh, along the lines of what has passed the House and the Senate uh, or has passed the House so far and will be up for grabs, as it were, uh, in the Senate in the next uh, couple of weeks, that we, if we get reforms along those lines, I think we can be re reasonably confident that the net result uh, will be that uh, the total cost by the government and by everyone else are going to increase, and they're going to increase much more rapidly than anyone has um, has anticipated. I think that's partly a byproduct of the fact that that when CBO scores things, they do they do simply one model after another over and over again, and, and, and consequently, the net result is you're going to end up with scores that tend to underestimate things because the scores that were on the high side are are rejected, and you go back uh, back to the legislative table and, and, and revise things until you finally get scores that are acceptable. Uh, so those scores won't hold up. Uh, the, the public sector costs will go up more than anticipated. The private sector costs are likely to go up much more than anticipated. And when systems are, find themselves spending more money uh, than they anticipated, and when those, uh, those extra expenditures are really quite large and they are impinging upon uh, uh, budgetary uh, constraints that are already rather, rather serious, it's natural for anyone running those systems to look at products that have low marginal costs uh, and high prices. Uh, and that's where we get to medical technology. Pharmaceuticals and devices uh, uh, are typically products in which uh, the prices are far above the marginal cost of producing those things, which means that if you can push down those prices, usually you don't have to worry about the supply. The supply will continue to flow because the profits will still be there. Uh, so it's a natural temptation uh, to attack uh, those kinds of products, and that's what the Europeans have done, the Australians. Canadians, et cetera, and they've been pretty successful. They've been able to force down drug prices. They continue to get the, the supply of drugs, even drugs that are quite new, although there's often significant uh, delays. But they've showed that that's the way that you can, that you can save money. I think that that same um, uh, technique will be uh, tempting to anyone who has control over this kind of stuff. Uh, and I think that uh, health care reform is going to do actually two things. One is it will bring us a new, a new world in which costs are uh, increasing more rapidly than anticipated. And secondly, it's going to give um, uh, more control, uh, either by, directly by the government or by very large ent entities indirectly, over how health care uh, is being run, over how much is being spent, and therefore over the prices of, of products and, um, and the costs that are, uh, that are being incurred for various products. And so I think that there are, there are reasons uh, to worry. I think that, the, uh, that, that uh, if, if we um, bear in mind the basic fact that what has driven innovation to such a large extent, extent has not only been an unconstrained market, but a market in which no one has had to make decisions about how, how much uh, uh, incentive to provide for R&D. And if we move to a market that is more constrained, in which those decisions are made more consciously, um, the danger is that, uh, that, that uh, anyone running these systems, especially in the federal government, will follow the natural impulse to push down costs and expenditures in the short run. There's, no one will know what's being sacrificed in the long run, so you really can't say, well, you're losing these innovations um, by spending too little now because no one knows what those innovations are, what, 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 they're, um, um, what you might lose. And in fact, uh, if we do have something such as comprehensive price controls over pharmaceuticals, and if we do lose a lot of innovation, even then we won't know. There will be no way to know what we're, we're losing, which I think in a sense is probably the, um, the ultimate uh, danger. Uh, so uh, to my mind, uh, the, uh, the answer to the question, is health reform a threat to innovation? Uh, the answer is it probably is, and it might be a serious threat, um, but it's a little bit hard to say yet. Thank you.
Well, I'd like to thank all of our speakers today for coming in under time, which means congratulations, you get to eat. Okay. <laughs> we follow uh, incentives. And, right. And, and uh, so I have, I have two questions that I want to pose. I'm just going to pose one of them now um, and the, work the other one in later. And it, it has to do, actually, uh, Ray, you commented on uh, the current legislation, how it might affect innovation, and then, and then uh, Jack, you, you did as well. Um, I'd like to ask Jerry to, to offer your thoughts, but also not just about pharmaceuticals, the, the uh, effect that price controls or negotiated pricing on pharmaceuticals would have on pharmaceutical innovation. But also, um, the Cato Institute recently published a study by a finance economist named John Cochran that argued that uh, price controls on health insurance uh, inhibit in innovative insurance products, and, and Ray alluded to that. And certainly the exchange controls that the government uses when it purchases, when it's a purchaser of medical services, either through the Medicare program or the Medicaid program, the fee-for-service exchange controls that the government uses to purchase medical care has inhibited the business model innovation that, that Ray talks about. So I'd uh, like to give you an opportunity to comment on all of those and, 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 and Jack and Ray on, on any of the ones that you, know, you didn't get a chance to discuss. Do every one now. I'm, I'm going to try to remember all of them. That'll be a challenge. Right? If I forget one, please. Um, basically, the whole issue of price controls. If I look at the trends, and I showed you some of those over time in the United States and in the world, basically we see a downward trend in innovation, in, at least in the pharmaceutical industry. I think we're seeing an uptake in biologics, and we're sort of neutral in terms of devices. But we're basically seeing, in the major part of it, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, a downtake in, in the innovation, at least in terms of blockbusters and in tubes of new medical entities. So, I mean, I think the system, even before health reform, is not giving us the incentives that we would like to see. Um, and so what I think, what I'm working towards is trying to figure out a new way to create an innovative uh, system so that we don't so have so many uh, similar drugs, similar devices, but we really do have those innovations because I think what, what, what Jack is correct is when we have a truly new innovation, then the world has to pay one price for that innovation. But when there are new brand name drugs, but they are remarkably similar to ones that are not, the other countries say, we're not going to pay a whole lot of money for something that's similar to something else. We only want to pay a lot of money for something's new. So that's why I brought up the whole idea of Sweden and really paying for value. When you see a new drug, a new device, a new biologic, which is really innovative, then I think the countries are willing to pay a lot of money for that. When the other countries are seeing a device, a, a biologic, which is not all that innovative, they are saying no, and I think what we are saying is, yeah, we'll still pay that higher price for that. So I think, you know, I think we can use some kind of rate setting, some kind of price controls in order to provide innovation in this area. In the whole issue of, of, of business models, I mean, I think what we've got is the incentives for, for um, different uh, companies like United Healthcare to be different from WellPoint and to have innovative products because that's the nature of the marketplace. But I would ask you a question. 
And the question I would ask you is, can you tell me the difference between United and WellPoint? Is there any difference between those two? I can tell you the difference between McDonald's and Burger King when I go in. I know what it is. I cannot tell the difference between WellPoint and, 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 and uh, United. Uh, they have so many products that are overlapping, they really don't look to me any different. And so I think the system isn't working for them to be innovative, and we've got to figure out a way to make them more innovative so that we do, in fact, get these new ideas, because these new ideas are not just coming up in the United States, but they're coming up in the UK. They did value-based purchasing way before we did uh, on those kinds of things. So it's not just that we're the only place that's doing innovative in terms of, of, of these uh, business models. And with that, I will end. Ready? Um, Jack? disagree. <laughs> I figured you would. Um, um, on, on innovation, the problem is how do you know what's a real innovation and what isn't? You have a new product and let's say it, it, it attacks a certain kind of cancer that, other, that no one else has, has successfully attacked. You could say that's an, that's an innovation. You don't know whether it's a real innovation or whether it's, it's sort of a, a passing fad. But what I mean by that, in the next couple of years, Several other products may be either developed or will, existing products will be tested that turn out to do pretty much the same thing. Or you may have something that looks like it's more of the same thing, but in fact is qualitatively different. If you look at, at heart disease, um, where the, the, the rates of heart attacks have declined you know, at, at, at an absolutely astonishing rate. I'm old enough to remember when it was, that when people had heart attacks, they didn't live very long. And now they usually... They usually do. And the rate of heart attacks is much less than it used to be, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of this is coming from these statin uh, drugs. If you look at the guidelines for how to use these statins and, and, and who should be treated, the number of people who, sh who should be treated at one point was, I don't know what it was, but it was a small percentage of the population. It's expanded over the years. So there are a much larger number of, of, of people, mostly men, but not entirely. Uh, are now recommended for, for treatment, and they're recommended because the data show that they will benefit very substantially. So we can now we can now reduce the heart attack rates by 20 or 30 or 40 percent in populations that at one time were never considered to be candidates for these kinds of, of drugs. The reason we know that, um, and the reason that we know that when, when Tim Russert had his, his fatal heart attack, and the newspapers were full of stories, some of them were really quite well informed, in which they said, you know, don't get the idea he had a heart attack because the artery got so narrow that the blood couldn't get through. Probably what happened was he had some plaque there. That plaque was irritated. Um, there was some inflammation. It spewed off some stuff. That went someplace else, and that's what, that's what killed him. The reason we knew that is because of the stunning results that came out of clinical trials for the statin drugs. And those results did not come from the first drugs. They came from the later ones that were tested against the first ones. And the most spectacular trial was a prove-it trial called Prove-It, which was run by BMS because they knew that their drug, Pravacol, was not as effective in lowering cholesterol as Lipitor was. And their theory was the same thing that Jerry was talking about, the same thing the Germans and so many others have said. That it doesn't matter, these things. All we know is that they all push down LDL. It doesn't matter what we do. And so what they did was they tested you know, a fairly potent version of their drug against Lipitor, which, is, which was inherently more potent and pushed down LDL far beyond any levels that anyone was recommending, just to show that it didn't matter. And they finished up, 
and it made a huge difference. I mean, you can look at Eric Tobel's editorial in the New England Journal. He talks about a sea change in cardiology because they had discovered that when you push down LDL the way that only Lipitor at that time could do, you got things that no one ever dreamed would happen. And that's when they had to go back and they were looking at the mechanisms of heart attacks and so on because there was this, this real mystery, which is why was it that within 30 days after people were getting these drugs that the rate of heart attacks was going down? And they discovered it wasn't because the arteries are getting wider. It was something else. Opened up all sorts of of new areas of research. Crestor, same thing. There's a, a trial called Jupiter, published a year or two ago. Again, they got spectacular results from Crestor, which is more powerful than Lipitor and does things that Lipitor can't do. They'll still ex they are still exploring how heart attacks work, how, how all, of, all of these mechanisms work, what exactly LDL does, how much does it have to do with, with cholesterol and plaque, how much does it have to do with inflammation, uh, and a number of other things. This is all a result of research that was being done on these useless Me Too drugs that are not worth paying extra money for. So what I'm saying is when you see a new drug that comes along, you don't know how big of an innovation it is. When a second drug comes along that's attacking the same mechanism, we have a Vastin that works with a VEGF inhibitor that is a VEGF inhibitor. Someone else, other um, in VEGF inhibitors are coming along. Some of them are in testing. Some of them, I think, at least one has actually been approved. We don't know which one's going to do the best. We don't know which one's going to open up a big frontier or a small frontier. There's no way to know until these drugs are explored for their therapeutic uh, potential over the years as to when you've had a, a big innovation and when you haven't. And so my problem with, with Jerry, who's about as good as an economist as there is in this kind of stuff, in my, in my view, is that we're assuming that we know too much. The government knows too much, and therefore the temptation is to assume that they can pick out the winners and losers along here and adjust reimbursement accordingly. And what I'm suggesting is that doesn't work. Yeah, I would so, want to see demonstrated value before I want to pay for something. So I want to, I, I'm going to wait until I can see that this new drug is valuable. So I want to create all the incentives for Merck and Pfizer and BMS to demonstrate the value of their drugs. So I think what you're suggesting is exactly what I would do. Okay, right. Wait. Well, okay. Let me ask you, Ray, how many Me Too drugs did you count in your study? <laughs> uh, none. The whole, the whole point of the study is to look at um, we, I, as I explained, I, we looked at the um, first in class, so the first drugs developed in each class, or if not the first, the one that was most influential. So we specifically so, stayed away from the Me Too. Drugs. So okay, so did you want to respond to the question I posed earlier, or, should we, or could we go to the audience? Um, about about healthcare reform and other types of uh, innovation. Yeah. Um, so in, I did want to I did want to follow up. Um, Mr. McAfee's comment with just a, an, a simple couple of examples. One of the points that um, I made during the presentation is that innovations are controversial sometimes when they first come out. And that's a point we do have to keep in mind when we think about innovation. It's kind of easy to say, well, let's just, let's just see, let's just fund the best ones. Um, CT scanners, which are now in every hospital and used for a wide variety of purposes in the hospital, when they first came out, a lot of prominent physicians in the United States said these things are useless. They're not really going to advance care at all. Um, if they had the authority to decide whether they were going to be funded or not, um, we may have never seen them. There, there are several examples that you can see like this. Um, and so that, that's just... Okay. Questions? Um, how about down here on the aisle, please? Wait for the microphone to get to you, and please uh, give us your name and any affiliation you want to share. 
I'm Dr. John O'Brien, the College of Notre Dame School of Pharmacy, and, and as a Bloomberg grad and one of your former students, it's, it's great to see you at Cato. I, I think we, we, we need that kind <laughs> yeah, of... show up all sorts of places. That, that kind of leadership. Um, my, 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 my big challenge is that when I was one of your students, hypertension control in this country was at about 27%, and today it's still only 33%, and that's where a lot of the remaining heart attacks and, and heart disease is coming from. And my challenge and the difference between some of these insurance plans is that the ones that actually promote people using medicines better actually achieve better results. And unfortunately, the managed care industry has by and large said, you know what, if you have blood pressure, you get a blood pressure drug. And, and the difference between ACE cough and whether or not you can get one of the newer ARBs or you have to fail three ACE inhibitors before you can get the latest drug, that, that's my, my biggest concern. And, and I really appreciate, Ray, what you said about the value of these, these business model designs in, in innovation. When I hear about what Pitney Bowes has done and when I hear about you know, the Midwest Business Group on Health and what they've done to promote adherence, that's my concern about health reform is the challenge of if there's going to be a one-size-fits-all health insurance plan, it doesn't allow that innovation to say, hey, if you use your medicines better and you get healthier, we will reward you. And we can help you actually get well, stay healthy, and save money out of your own pocket, but, but over, overall. So given your expertise in creating new payment models at, at Medicare, I hope that you can continue to lend the same influence into the value-based insurance design conversation or, or do whatever's necessary so that the, the reforms that do happen actually do improve care. Well, I, I thank you for the plug for Johns Hopkins, and, um, and, I, and I agree with you. Uh, I think, for me, the, the problem that I have with the innovative models in insurance is most of us are in our insurance company for two years, three years, four years, either because we change jobs or we find a better deal. And that doesn't provide a lot of incentive for our managed care organization to, to work on something that's a two-year, five-year, ten-year plan. So we've got to figure out a way to get the incentives for these managed care plans to, to worry about us longer term than most of them have an incentive right now. So that, for me, that's the thing that I'm trying to work on. And so the standard solution is to, is to get rid of the tax exclusion for health care premiums so that more insurance runs through the individual market instead of through employers so that more people have, a, have two things. One, they have more choice among different plans. And secondly, there are much greater opportunities for people to have uh, guaranteed renewable long-term plans to stick with the plan for, for quite a few years. That can be done and sometimes does happen in the individual market. Um, yeah, and I'd like to refer you guys to John Cochran, who's written about long-term health insurance, I think, um, quite well. Um, but the, the issue of value-based pricing in, in health insurance, I think, is um, it's important. It's important to keep in mind that it's it's not an easy answer. It's actually kind of difficult to find out which kinds of things should be funded by insurance companies, which kinds of things should not, what kinds of things do prevent heart attacks, what kinds of things don't, and to work out these incentives. And so, um, in order to really accomplish that, we have to we we have to sort of free up the insurers to do more innovation in insurance products, which has been a major limitation in this area. Um, insurance um, companies face a lot of um, restrictions and regulations on what they have to cover, and in some states really, um, and what they're allowed to charge too, and whether they're allowed to rate individually or not, and that, um, and that, has, that really makes it difficult to come up with sort of outlying insurance plan that say, you know, you're going to be responsible for this, or we're only going to pay for that. Next question. Sir?
Thank you, gentlemen, for your comments. Um, it, it's actually very refreshing to hear uh, your very to-the-point points around healthcare reform because I've heard a lot of speakers over the past few months and a lot of pontification about actually how it will um, truly affect the pharmaceutical and medical device industries. Uh, my, my question is specifically around um, the issue of comparative effectiveness and how you believe it may or may not impact medical innovation, especially around um, development of new therapies for rare genetic diseases and cancers. Um, do you think that it will be a requirement? Do you think it might be an, an exception to the rule? Um, and if so, you know, what types of um, clinical studies, economic studies could be um, developed um, when it's challenging to find a relevant comparator in some of these disease categories? Um, I'm a fan of comparative effectiveness, and I'm not optimistic about comparative effectiveness. I mean, I think if you look at the legislation, it doesn't incur the word costs. It doesn't allow it to be used for co coverage decisions. There's a whole lot of things that it's not allowed to do, which I think in most of the other countries it has been allowed to do. So in that regard, I'm not very optimistic. Also, sort of the way it's been funded at the NIH and in ARC and, and other places, it's sort of like, we've got to get this money out in a year, two years. These studies take five years, six years, and the Congress is going to be looking for some kind of impact next year, two years from now, when they reauthorize it, and they're going to find nothing, um, and so we're going, to, we're going to be back with, you know, the problem of, of not having any comparative, and I think the, the final example I would give you is the whole mammography discussion that we've had in the last two or three days is, you know, basically they came out with what they believed was very good science and politics basically stopped on them in about three seconds. So, I mean, I think any time that you come out with a comparative effectiveness study that's controversial, the politics, I think, will just trump it in the United States. And one of the persons, one of the politicians who immediately jumped on the mammography report was, of course, the person who runs the agency that includes ARC and that would do um, a lot of this re research. I'm a fan of comparative effectiveness research, too. I think you can do a lot of good. Um, my problem is that when it's funded primarily through um, uh, ARC, you tend to get agenda-driven uh, research. Uh, I disagree they have to run for five years. You can... I mean, some trials would have to be five years long to learn what you want to know, but there's a lot of stuff that can be done much, much faster. But if you look at Allhat, KD, and other big studies, you know, they, they really haven't had much of an impact on practice because they were so big, they were so long-running, they were so agenda-driven that they ended up with results that most doctors didn't think were very important. Um, anyway, I think there may be an argument for subsidizing comparative effectiveness research because it is, to some extent, a public good. But I think those subsidies should be spread around to lots and lots of different groups and organizations uh, and, and probably with relatively little influence um, from ARC or someone like that. But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a messy topic. I agree. Ray? Well, I, if, if, to throw in my two cents, I, I too am a fan of comparative effectiveness research, and I'm not optimistic about government-funded comparative effectiveness research. I hope that we made available outside a, a study that we published that I authored, I think this year or last year, about comparative effectiveness research and how uh, whenever the government funds comparative effectiveness research, and this has happened over and over again, the agency that, as soon as that agency produces some useful research, it gets defunded because under intense lobbying from the people whose products were shown not to be that useful. So, uh, because they fe fear their incomes are going to be threatened. And so the graveyards in Washington, D.C. are littered with these agencies that have tried to do that and have been defunded. 
Yes, sir. I'm Don Marsh, and I'm a Cato benefactor from uh, Bainbridge Island, Washington. I didn't. I should have been more aware, perhaps, that the emphasis that, that this seminar was going to be on innovation rather than uh, healthcare generally, and including insurance. But uh, I didn't hear, and maybe I missed it, that the explanations for the differences among countries in innovation, and particularly to what extent. Might it be explained by reliance on government to provide, subsidize, or promote innovation in one form vis-a-vis -vis private enterprise and the, and the free market? Is there any, any, uh, can any of you make any observations on what may account for the differences in these levels of innovation between, uh, between the markets. Maybe you did and I just didn't get it. Well, basically, the NIH is the funder of basic research. So if we're talking about innovation uh, in basic research, much of it's going to come from R01s funded by the NIH. And that's, I think, partially why we have disproportionately more Nobel Prize winners because of the NIH and that investment. Now, if you talk about the private industry side, I look at Merck and Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline as being multinational corporations with research all over. So Novartis, United States, but has in, in just opened a billion dollars in, in China in terms of research and development. We can say that it's a United States company. We can say that it's a, a Swiss company. We can say that it's any company. But in, in fact, all this research is done in a multinational kind of activity. So I think to try to assign it to one country is a bit naive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it, <clears throat> as Dr. Anderson said, when it comes to basic science, most of the funding seems to be coming from government services. And that's, and U.S. Um, NIH spends a lot more than its counterparts in Europe and other countries, and that could be um, accounting for the basic science piece. Diagnostics, and there, although there has been private funding of basic science as well, I don't want to say that all of it is coming from the National Institutes of Health. Um, when it comes to diagnostics and therapeutics, most of that funding is private, and most of that is um, right. And it, although we we don't have clear data on how much total spending is occurring in the various countries, we do know that there are higher returns to innovation. At least the best evidence indicates that in the United States. So that's likely at least a factor involved. Um, there are also, we do see evidence of physicians and scientists from other countries coming to the United States. There's lots of examples of physicians, um, uh, even, even those who've innovated, who've made innovations that come up to the top 30 in the last 40 years, um, or were from other countries but came to practice here. Or in, um, I think Thomas um, Bohm estimates that there are 400,000 European-born scientists that are currently practicing in the United States. There's a certain confluence of both spending and quality of innovators that were really attracting um, smart people to the United the States. NIH is the, the, the NIH itself is, but the basic science research isn't entirely funded by the NIH, but that is where most of the funding comes from.
could I hit a couple a couple of things? Um, one, um, it's not just a matter of money. It's a matter of the way research is run. Um, I mean, I, my sense is until the until the Europeans make a lot more progress in reforming their own university system, and until they have a large and vigorous private university system, remember, awful lot of the Nobel prizes here go to private schools such as Hopkins. Um, until they do that, um, they're never going to get catch up with the U.S. Uh, in basic research, even if they decide to spend as much money as NIH, NIH does, which they are not getting close to doing. Still, the, the, the disparity between the research environments is much greater than just amount of money. And it's, it's a matter of how these institutions are run, not just the universities, but the research institutions, um, like uh, Rockefeller, um, et cetera. Um, another thing is that, uh, well, as an example of that, um, sure, you could say NIH funds a lot of Nobel Prizes, but they don't fund Nobel Prizes in economics. Uh, that's you know that, that comes completely from other other sources, and that mainly is a result of the of the superiority of the private universities in the U.S. and the best public universities who have to compete with those private universities. And finally, I think that it's easy to miss the fact that an awful lot of pretty basic research is performed at the large uh, for-profit research institutions. Um, there was recently a, a wonderful biography of Maurice Hilleman, uh, the longtime researcher at Merck who developed so many of the vaccines that are now so familiar. Uh, and not only did he develop the basic technology and pretty basic science on, on how you develop vaccines and how you make them work, but he did some wonderful work on interferons back when they were first discovered, uh, which some people think developed and uh, merited a Nobel Prize. And then you look at a place like Genentech. Um, and you look at some of their revolutionary drugs, including Avastin, Lucentis, and so on. But the research to produce their drugs goes all the way back to very fundamental levels, including um, uh, the discovery of the VEGF, uh, vascular endothelial growth factor, uh, growth factor, which so far has, has proved to be the single most important key to how you can eject, uh, attack cancer cells by doing something about the blood supply that they develop for, them, for themselves. I think that Yes, NIH funds most, most, most basic research, but the lines between basic and applied research are pretty fluid these days, especially in biotechnology.